welcome to another episode of the DCHIP podcast. This is Martin Nordern. In this episode, you will hear Principal Investigator Claire Holden discuss some of the archival research that has been done as part of the DCHIP project. As this conversation was recorded while I was away from Oxford doing archival tasks of my own, co-investigator Eric Clark, whose voice you also heard on the previous episode, stepped in as Claire's conversation partner. And the discussion that they had focused, amongst others, on the different archives that we have visited, the kinds of material that these archives contain, the annotations that you find in sets of orchestral parts, and the implications of these findings, as well as other related topics. But the conversation started with Eric asking Claire how this project is different from other projects focusing on HIP research. Well, the main uh, difference between the Transforming 19th Century HIP project and, and historical performance research that's been done previously uh, is the breadth of what we're covering when we go into archives. Um, traditionally, people looked at treatises that had been written on how to play, usually individual instruments, um, and they looked at evidence from instruments themselves. So, um, And that's all very important work, but actually now we're moving into uh, different areas. I think what's happened in the past is that the main question for people researching historical performance has been to look positivistically for evidence of what players did. Um, and where we're a little bit different is that I think we're predominantly concerned with trying to gain some understanding of why they might have played in the ways that they played, how they made artistic decisions and why. Um, and in order to do that, we need to uh, really broaden out and contextualise the research we do. So we do, do a lot more social and cultural uh, research. So we try to understand um, what some of the working conditions were, uh, what the effect was of training um, as people came through into the musical professions. Um, we try to understand a lot more about uh, how people played music beyond the concert hall. So a lot of traditional research, uh, really privileged genres and focused on music that took place uh, in a public concert hall where you bought a ticket. Um, and there was so much other music going on as well. So the distinctions in the 19th century, particularly the early 19th century, between public and private performance, what was happening in salons and homes, uh, and between professional and amateur performance, and between theatre and concert hall performance were all much less distinct. Um, and we try to gain some understanding as to the effect that that had on, on performers. Also looking you know, at aspects to do with aesthetics. You know, if we understand how people read poetry, can that tell us something about how people articulated in chamber music? Um, so we look at a lot of lost histories under research groups. What we don't do is what's been focused on a lot in the past, which is a study of virtuosi, 
who by their very nature uh, are, are fascinating, but they're fascinating because they're outliers and we're more interested in, in you know, what was happening uh, for, for the majority of musicians who were living, working. The same thing with treatises. The treatises weren't really written for groups of professional players for professional artists but now that's been the primary source that professional artists today have been drawing on to understand how how players played historically so we're just broadening out really and we go into lots of different archives some of the archives we go into deal primarily with performance materials so we've done the largest ever survey of 19th century annotated orchestral parts um, by looking at what the players marked into the parts and indeed what the conductors uh, sometimes marked into the parts we can start to understand some of the priorities of musical decision making um, so can you just give me can you give the, uh, some examples of some of the kinds of archives that the project has been looking at yes we've been um, to some very varied archives we've been to some that are the collections of specific orchestras so the Halle Orchestra in Manchester in the UK so we've also been to the Chicago Symphony Orchestra archive um, where Theodore Thomas their first conductor uh, has left a, a huge number of sets of annotated parts which are really fascinating uh, resource we've been to some uh, archives that have very mixed material, the Tams Whitmark archive in Madison, Wisconsin which has a large number of opera and theatre music parts, uh, many of which came across from British theatres uh, in the late 18th and early 19th centuries so parts from the Theatre Royal Bath um, which are now housed there um, and also we've uh, been doing a lot of work on a collection that was found in Norwich, which are some of the earliest annotated parts um, that we know about from the UK. And very unusual because, again, a set of theatre parts and uh, the vast majority of theatre collections were lost in theatre fires. So we found some really fascinating material. We've been to archives in Dusseldorf, archives linked to music festivals in Europe, uh, and that work's still ongoing. So there's no shortage of material for us. So can you just give us um, some idea about the kinds of materials that you've been looking at in these archives? Yes, so we have a lot of correspondence between musicians and uh, other musicians, so between conductors and soloists. Um, for example, we have a lot of uh, documents relating to the running of orchestras, the kind of bureaucracy involved in running orchestras or music festivals, uh, how people were engaged, what the terms were, what, what the rehearsal processes were. And I think we'll have another podcast explaining some of the findings of the research into rehearsals. We've also looked at a huge number of press reviews, um, not actually just reviews of concerts, but the publicity, the build-up to concerts is often quite revealing as well. Um, we've looked at material relating to the foundation of music conservatoires, which, uh, of course, were, were really coming into 
being during the time that we're looking at. So finding out what their aims were when they were established, how they uh, how they did their examining, that those kinds of things, what the programmes were, that's all fascinating stuff. But because we're not looking in one specific geographical area, that means there's a lot of work to do with languages. Um, so it's a lot of work, a lot of slow work, there's so much material from Germany, but we're often working with 19th century German script. So it's quite an undertaking. So can you give us some idea about what kinds of annotations you're finding on some of these orchestral parts? What variety of different kinds of annotations there might be? Well, we find um, a, a great variety of markings. Uh, we find actually quite a lot of pictures um, so some of which would classify as graffiti, uh, others seem to be related to visual cues in, in theatre music. We have lots of markings for cuts, lots of markings for transpositions. We have timings, actually, a lot of timings. Uh, some of those seem to be used by players who might need to leave the stage or the orchestra pit for a movement or more, uh, particularly brass players, of course. Um, we get notes from one player who's had the part to the player who might come after them, warning them of certain things. Um, very occasionally we get little snippets of arguments between players written down in the parts. We get lots of changes in dynamics we uh, we get in theatre music we get verbal cues we get visual cues for things that are happening on stage um, the one thing that we never ever get really before the 1880s is bowings there are very very few bowing markings uh, put in in any systematic way before that date which is perhaps later than we would have imagined the other thing is that it's very clear that pencils were regularly used on each individual desk much earlier than I personally expected to find them. So from, from the 18-teens, then it's certainly clear that in English orchestras, uh, every desk had a pencil on it. What do you think the implication is of not finding any bearing marks until quite late in the century? It's interesting to try and interpret what we can take from the fact that there are no bowing markings prior to the 1880s, um, because we certainly have indications in some of the treatises, Spohr immediately springs to mind, where um, players are being taught that it's desirable if the bows basically move in the same direction. Um, but it's clearly not expected in the way that we expect with orchestral discipline today. I think one of the big areas of research for, for the project is looking at agency within the orchestra and how sections functioned. We certainly know it's not what we would expect today. Um, and quite deliberately so, I, I think. The idea that... Um, you would play together with pinpoint accuracy that everybody would change notes at exactly the same place on a bar line in a highly expressive passage would would have seemed really quite uh, clinical, 
quite almost lacking in artistry, I think, to many 19th century players. So one of the big areas um, for the project is to experiment with orchestral agency and see what we can open up uh, as options to players. You mentioned before that um, quite a bit of this archival research has moved beyond treatises and just a narrow focus on the music and more about kind of social context. Are there aspects of the social context that seem also to indicate this more um, express, more freely expressive um, character to orchestral playing? So one of the things that really stands out when we look into the cultural and social side of what was going on in the early 19th century is the idea of discourse between musical voices. So particularly in chamber music, the idea that actually having an evening of making chamber music in the home was very much like having a, a, an intellectual discourse between people. So as music was passed around the ensemble, if you had a really uh, highly trained string quartet today, what might happen is that if as a melodic line went round the ensemble, everybody would bow it and phrase it in a certain way, that it would pass seamlessly and, and that as it was reiterated in another voice, it would be uh, performed in a, a very, very similar way to how it had been and that the ensemble would make decisions together about how to shape and phrase that particular melodic theme. In the early 19th century, it was much more likely that as the material was passed round, people would comment on what had been given to them, that they'd uh, choose to question it or to take the discussion further with what they did musically. So that actually the idea of parroting back the musical phrase that somebody had presented you with would seem very strange to them. It was almost the function as it went round to put a slightly different twist on it to keep the conversation going and, and to, to bring out different uh, possibilities with the material. So that sort of chamber music um, mentality, um, do you think or is there evidence for, or both of those, um, the same is true for larger orchestral playing as well, and in that case perhaps something about how that might be working. I think certainly uh, standards of modern orchestral technique and discipline simply don't apply to the period that we're looking at, that actually the way musicians functioned in larger ensembles was very different to what we might expect today. Um, and that there was much more freedom um, for personal expression. And I think that doesn't necessarily mean that it was a mess, that actually players were not capable of playing together. Um, but I think that really before the recording era, attitudes towards expression in large ensembles were just much more free um, than, than we might expect today. And I think when we look at that, we find that members of a string section are changing bow in a very slightly different place. It puts a completely different bloom on the sound. And in an era where there was no constant vibrato, uh, I think that provided a kind of soft-edged effect to the sound which is quite exciting actually if we can uh, get players today to 
to see if that's of any use to them in highly expressive passages. So perhaps you could say something about the implications of this rather broader approach to archival research, both in terms of uh, you know archives themselves, but also perhaps for the implications for doing HIP work of this kind. One of the things that we're finding is that there are fewer researchers coming through now who have the archive skills that they feel they need. Uh, university undergraduate courses have broadened out, which is great, but it means that there perhaps isn't the time available to teach archive skills in the way that there might have been in the past. And uh, consequently, a lot of people are doing PhDs now that don't use archive skills. Uh, or if they do, they feel that they're completely unprepared for the research that they're taking on. And so the project has been working to help early career researchers gain the archive skills that, that can be useful to them. And that's especially important if we're dealing with players that are interested in research who, who've perhaps not had a university background at all. So I think we've been working with organisations like the British Library and the Bodleian Libraries, as well as with researchers from other universities, to ascertain what researchers who are new to archival work uh, really need help with. Um, And I think that there are so many different types of archives. We're quite used to thinking about some of the big library collections as, as being... Uh, something that's quite approachable that we know how to deal with. But if the area that you want to look at is in a private family collection or it's in the collection of a non-music-specific archive uh, or it's somewhere in a different language, um, it, you know, for example, in the area that we're dealing with, there were lots of private music societies. So dealing with those kind of archives can be quite difficult. And so I think, uh, you know, one of the big areas that we'd really like to look at is how we can uh, show with our own work, but also in a hands-on way, help performers who are researching to really feel that they they have the skills and the support they need to do that kind of research. In all this work of the archives, have you come across any particularly kind of striking or unusual materials that you could tell us about? So one of the things that we get down the margins uh, of the music are accounts of of who went out together for dinner the night before, what they had to eat, what they had to drink, how much it cost. Um, And it seems that there was a great deal of camaraderie um, and that actually, although times were often very difficult for those kind of musicians, it looks like eating and drinking and and sharing post-performance time together was as as important in the 19th century as it is today. Great. So in some ways, not all that much has changed in some aspects of the total kind of orchestral culture. Thanks a lot.